you know, brothers and sisters and neighbors in the world who, and I, by extreme, I mean, they've just experienced some of the harshest things that life can offer and have had to adapt in ways that um, many people like to label in all kinds of ways. Um, and one of the challenging issues that we label people as problems, but people, human beings are not problems to be fixed. They're to be loved. They're human beings to be loved, to be supported, to be challenged sometimes, sure, right? Um, held accountable, whatever. But like, we can't start with the positionality or the space of a person being the problem. People experience problems, but people are not problems, right? They're human beings. <laughs> Greetings, everyone. My name is Alfredo Gonzalez Valenzuela, and you are now at the Climate Frontline. Good morning, afternoon, evening, wherever you may be. My name is Alfredo Gonzalez Valenzuela, and you are now at the Climate Frontline the show where I engage with leaders in social movements, industries, and artists that have conversations that center the communities that are at the front line of climate change. And our community does this one conversation at a time. So before we dive into the episode today with Michael O'Brien, I wanted to reflect on some headlines that are coming my way. First, I wanted to bring back last week's debate into focus because I realized that people are using this term fence line communities and frontline communities and this diction or terms. I'm wondering who is coming up with these terms, like who is really coming up with those terms or flip it another way, the people who are affluent and rich, the quote unquote elite do they go on to call themselves elite? I think this is why I'm so passionate about the show, this show and this community because my focus on language. Now, I don't go on to the communities that I'm working with and say to them that you are frontline communities. Now, there are people who use these terms, yes, but even those folks have outlined themselves that English is a limiting language that limits their communication, limits their interaction. So you tell me what you think. Is it fair for dominant narratives to take charge of the stories of those people who are closest to these issues and change that narrative and have that narrative be driven by the mainstream movement, mainstream media, and call these folks quote-unquote fence line communities? Is it fair that the mainstream environmentalists produce academic papers that position them to be the quote-unquote experts of the quote-unquote frontline communities and they're treated as the experts and they get the credit? Is that fair? Second, before diving into today's episode with Michael, I wanted to also take a minute for us to be in community and spend a moment of silence for us to reflect and pay our respects to our brother who was lost, Walter Wallace.
And as you come back into this space, I want you to imagine this. Imagine if I was in a conflict. And imagine if the cops showed up. Imagine if I was shot 12 times. 12 times. That's 12 times. This brother was the same age as I was. As I am, I should say. Now, I get the sense that many of you agree with me. And this goes far beyond just George Floyd and some people that needed to see it in camera and decided to just wake up. This brother got shot 12 times. I mean, wow. I wanted to make some space to pay our respects to that because the narrative that our black brothers and sisters are all bad, are evil, are thieves, this anti-blackness that is the root of the culture here in the United States or what we refer to as the United States. The narrative I'm trying to change in this podcast And as you shall hear, the narrative that Michael is trying to change through his work in Philadelphia. These narratives, these mainstream narratives, they're all the same. They're all the same narrative that we're trying to change. And so, without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael. I hope you enjoy it. So today, I am really excited to have this conversation with Michael O'Brien. Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you. I just wasted so much water. (laughs) But I'm good. Thank you so much. I have never seen my reflexes move that fast to get my computer out of the way. It actually kind of reminds me of the way we probably all need to be responding to climate change in the moment. Okay. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) And I am luckily with a dry computer. Excellent news. Hey, Michael, would you mind just sharing a little bit about who you are and what is it that you like to do in this journey called life? Yeah. Oh, that's such a great question. What do I like to do in this journey called life versus like, what's your job, right? Um, so again, yeah, I'm Michael Bryan. Um, I am in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. It's a fascinating city. I love it with my whole heart. Um, I'm originally from Hartford, Connecticut. So I am originally a New Englander who came down to the birthplace of our country in Philadelphia um, because I just love old old America so much, clearly. Um, No, it's not true. Actually, I came to Philly because I wanted to be uh, around and a part of a history of Black art making uh, that I didn't get in Connecticut and couldn't be exposed to in Connecticut. That's honestly one of the main reasons that I came here because, you know, Philadelphia is the place outside of Detroit, you know, where contemporary music was making big strides in the world. So I was really excited to come here and further my artistic uh, education and journey and ended up getting involved in lots of other work here, ended up getting involved in lots of community work and ended up getting involved in uh, understanding human development and the sciences here. Um, I ended up getting involved with work in sectors that I really cared about, like housing and housing insecurity and experiences of homelessness and uh, health and well-being and money, economic development. I got really interested in what is this concept of community economic development 
Um, and that whole time, you know, over the last 17 years of me being here and learning these things, I've been able to keep art and media making central to the work and a part of my methodologies as a budding researcher and, you know, an avid reader and, you know, practitioner. And um, yeah, I've just been really fortunate to make a life uh, at the intersections of all the things I love using science, using art, using media, using um, design processes, you know, to really think about and interrogate how we create equitable workspaces, how we create equitable processes uh, or equitable or, or, or fair, right? And just processes for um, development and in communities and including voices that typically get marginalized and left out. So yeah, that, that's my, <laughs> it's my long rant about my work life. Yeah. Yeah. Water. Hopefully yeah, I I like how you shared like, hey, you know, like there's work life and then there's just yourself. So like, tell me, what's your favorite food or dish? What what Ooh, is uh, yeah. so what is there in, in your stomach when it most wants it? No, <laughs> I like that question. Um, you know, it's funny is I love I love food. Like I'm a foodie in Philadelphia. You know, I came here for the music. But honestly, the older I've gotten, I've been very fortunate to be able to travel and see many parts of the country, um, which is fascinating to me all the time because I grew up really poor in Hartford, Connecticut. My mother told me if I work hard, people will pay for me to see the world. Um, and I get to travel on their own dime, on their dime, not my own. And that did you know, come to pass. So I'm super grateful and lucky. And I also recognize that there's lots of people who work hard do not get that opportunity, right? Because unfortunately, classism and capitalism make it so that people can work 70-hour weeks and barely <laughs> be able to make ends meet, which is the wildest thing ever. Um, so all that being said, my favorite thing about Philly is how much food is here from an international perspective, right? There's mad people here there's so many kinds of folks and histories and food so it's hard for me to say my exact favorite food but i love the world's offering of food so you know at any given moment you know i'll eat ethiopian for lunch i'll have thai for dinner um i'll eat you know vietnamese for lunch the next day I'll have, you know, Senegalese food for dinner the next day. And then, you know, maybe the day after that, I'm going to have just traditional old American burger and fries kind of thing, right? But, like, I really love food and palates of, of, or, like, you know, cuisine from around the world and different flavor, flavorings and groupings of flavors. So, you know, one of my favorite, actually, uh, Cuisines is Colombian food. Like I love Colombian breakfast. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? And, and in fact, if I'm a bit very honest, one of the things I've I've learned, it's not a hundred percent true that like all Latinx folks eat the same kinds of things for breakfast, but regionally I found that like, you know, food food regionally tends to be similar and people have their own twist on certain things, you know what I'm saying? So yeah, yeah. 
I've found that there is a lot of South American food that I like. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, I found that I, I'm part of my family is Caribbean. I love Caribbean food. And I, you know, the joke is like, who makes the best curry, right? Um, so if I got friends who are from, you know, varying parts of West Africa and jollof rice is a thing they all joke about, like who makes the best jollof rice, right? So, um, and jollof rice is great, by the way. So anyhow, that that's my, that's the best way I can answer that question. I love food so much. It's so sad. Yeah. I, I love talking about food because it gets us to think about how is it that we relate to our environment, you know? And often I think uh, that there's several layers of division between us and the environment, right? You get brands involved, you get uh, grocery stores involved, and and all of a sudden it becomes this kind of distant thing, you know? Yeah. And, and I think talking about food is just one way in which, the main way really in which we can start to discuss really how is it that we relate to the environment and then ultimately how is it also that we relate to each other, right? So I appreciate you sharing some of your uh, tastes, uh, if you will, you know? Yeah. You know what's interesting about that comment, uh, what I love about what you just said too, is like it also gets us to remember that food is a part of our relationship to the earth, right? And our relationship to each other. Um, and that's why, you know, I, I laugh sometimes when I go certain places and I have certain dishes. So like, for example, when I was in my early 20s, super early 20s, 21, 22, I had arepas for, for the first time uh -huh. um, and was, uh, this is part of my experience with Colombian breakfast. And was like, oh, this is fascinating because I feel like I've had this before. Just it's not called an arepa, but I feel like <laughs> I've had a, a you know buttered up, mashed up corn or some corn and flour with some cheese. Like I'm like that's just and, and I thought about it and I was like, man, it's so funny how humans are human, right? Like no matter where you're at, you know, generically we're eating a lot of the same kinds of things, right? They might just be organized differently based on what's around you and what's available to you. But it is fascinating to me, like fish as a dish, right? Like people are eating fish in lots of places. One of the things that I loved about you know, being exposed to Vietnamese food was pork. I love pork. I'm, I am not a vegetarian and I will not make that lie uh, possible. But, you know, the, the so loving the idea of like pork, uh, being prepared in a number of ways and with sauces, you know, just gets me excited. But again, the, the flip side is back to my relationship with the, the earth and thinking about that culturally, it was interesting to think about and learn how other cultures, you know, dealt with meat, um, yeah. dealt with the process of, you know, killing animals And also dealt with the process of like the industry around those things yeah. um, and what's it like to have it be a lot more locally central versus yeah. to your point, big brands and grocery stores and meat factories, right? To learn that there are places in the world that didn't have meat factories when I was young, I was like, oh yeah, that makes perfect sense. Everybody's not over industrialized like we are. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I like what you're saying because at the, at the end of the day, it may be the you know the same food layered differently and just also called something different, you know. But it's mm -hmm. 
it's pretty much um, there. You know, the 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 ingredients are there. Yeah, I totally resonate with that, man. I I also been to Colombia and oh, and also to Philly, you know, and um, interesting places that are different realities in this world, you know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Hey, so uh, you know, I was doing some some digging in, in, into some of the work you've done, you know, and I I was really curious to ask you this question about this specific word, uh, which is wisdom. And my question to you is, how is it that you understand wisdom through your research versus wisdom in the community? And even just looking at this conversation we were just having around food, right? There's a lot of uh, natives people, indigenous people who are pretty, have a lot of wisdom around their food systems, right? Does that trump the wisdom that is in academic papers or... Yeah, just explore that question for me. T tell me a little bit of, of how you're thinking about that. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know that, <laughs> this is such a great question. I don't know that academia and formalized research produces wisdom. It produces data sets. It produces um, knowledge. It produces what, you know, official research that goes through, all of the process of review through a, a, what's called an IRB, internal um, review board. Um, it, you go through IRB approval to, if you want to create what they would call, uh, or excuse me, an institutional review board, um, not internal review, sorry. Um, Is that what IRB stands for? Yeah. Okay, cool. Um, and so it, an institutional review board is going to give you the clearance to do research that would be a part of what's called general, general, let me get it right, generalizable knowledge. Hmm. Um, so that's, you know, you want to be able to publish and peer reviewed studies and put out research that other people can build on in an official capacity, uh, et cetera. I don't know that that's producing wisdom. You feel me? Um, yeah, yeah. You're just producing knowledge that people can refer to excuse me and agreed upon sources to um you know further whatever it is that you're trying to accomplish or do right um i would argue that i have been exposed to plenty of things that i would not call wisdom through that world things that have made me sit back and scratch my head and go oh my god you clearly didn't talk to too many people who are impacted by that subject matter or who live those experiences. Um, and then you can tell by the way that questions were framed, you can tell by the way that the, you know, output of uh, the process or whatever that research process was, the output and the uh, recommendations and the ideas that are there, you're just kind of like, yeah, that, I mean, you're missing the mark because you just didn't talk to those folks clearly, or you didn't know how to make sense of what they told you, or you, you know, you threw out whole data sets that might've come in or whole pieces of um, experiences that came your way through that process and just chucked them out because researchers can do that. So this isn't me saying that research isn't necessary. It very much so is, I think, 
Um, but I think it's got to be decolonized a bit and democratized a bit so that we are producing wisdom out of that space. Um, you know, and I'm saying this as a bit of a rogue scholar, right? Like I'm able to participate in research and not be, I don't have an advanced degree, right? I've got some grad credits, um, enough that got me a graduate certificate from Jefferson University where, you know, it's in childhood development and trauma studies. Um, but I don't technically have a full master's and I technically don't have, you know, I, and I definitely don't have a PhD. Um, <laughs> and I'm looking into some of those programs, but I've sat on plenty of research projects and have done literature reviews and have advised research projects, particularly, I think, for this reason, right? Because people are going into places and spaces that they don't fully understand and they might have healthy curiosity, but if you're an outsider coming, and that's like me coming to Peru, right? Where you were just telling me that you grew up in or from a place that's 13,000 feet up in the air in a mountain. I mean, there's just so much I don't understand about that, let alone languages and all kind of other cultural things. I don't understand what it's like to live 13,000 feet up off the ground in a mountain. So yeah. I'm going to come into your world and I need to be grounded in your wisdom. Right? I need to be grounded in your experience, your knowledge, your sense of judgment in, in navigating how life has been handed to you because we all come into the world right. responding to it, right? We don't come into the world making choices, yeah. I'm, I'm, arguably, right? Unless people have certain belief systems that say, you know, destiny and heaven or the, you know, uh-huh. <laughs> Pick your parents and all that stuff. I respect all of the indigenous wisdom on the planet and people's belief systems, but from a functional, like ubiquitous standpoint, for like our functional, like common standpoint, from a conscious place, we all come into the world responding to it. We don't pick the woman who births us directly. You know what I mean? And, and a conscious sense of knowing as you we all experience being here in this moment and you know, we're just responding to what's around us and making life happen from there. And so yeah. who no one has the right to tell someone else that they don't have some semblance of wisdom right. about how they've navigated the world that they inherited. Absolutely. You know, whether or not that leads them, my last comment here, whether or not that leads them to the most fruitful life-sustaining outcomes is a different question. You know what I'm saying? Absolutely. And I picked up on this word that you use credit, you know, mm. like you have college credit, but set aside academics and, and universities and whatnot. I get the sense and correct me if I'm wrong, that you have more credit with communities and out in, in the community with the, in the streets and, and with youth. <laughs> That's a different credit, right? It is a very different. It's credit. not a, a yeah. GPA, right? No, yeah, no, definitely not a GPA. It's like yeah, tell me about that credit because I'm more interested in that credit. Yeah, it's like experiential points, you know what I mean? EPA, right? So, um, you know, I'll say this: I'm very fortunate. I am extremely, extremely fortunate that a lot of like the, 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 the for lack of a better term, though, in air quotes, the who ness, right? The like sustenance of who I am, the Michael O'Brien that I am, I'm able to navigate lots of spaces and places. I'm able to be in places and spaces that I would never really feel qualified to be in and stand in the, I can stand in those places with um, a certain amount of authority of what I'm there to bring and contribute. And equally, 
a lot of natural curiosity. I like to learn. I like to listen as much as I like to talk and contribute. Yeah. So that kind of you know balance, which I'm always aiming for more balance, but that kind of balance or oscillation has been helpful to me. And again, it's also been, I've been very fortunate. And so the cred I have on the streets, <laughs> you know, it's like, I'm not inauthentic. You feel me? Like, I'm I'm who I am. I'm a nerd. Um, I'm uh, and I love it. I'm a, an artist, and I love it. I am. I know where I come from, and I know who I am for, and and how that shaped me. Right? I know. Yeah. I know what it's like to be poor. You feel me? Like, <laughs> and I'm not yeah. ever going to run away from that reality. And just because I know what it's like to be poor in the context of how I experience, you know quote unquote, what do we want, whether we want to call it poverty or, you know, uh, living in a low income neighborhood, blah, blah, blah. Um, I also recognize that I don't know what that mean, what being poor or living through poverty means in other contexts, right? Like, I don't know what it means to experience poverty in Peru. I don't know what it's like to experience poverty in America, even growing up in other cultures in different neighborhoods and and because culture is not just um, ethnic, it's regional. It's all it's all kinds. It's about age. Youth culture is a whole freaking phenomenon, right? So I understand that space, and I think that's what gives me a lot of credibility. Credibility with people is that I don't profess to know their experience. I know my experience, and I spend a lot of time investigating and interrogating my experience and picking out from it what is universal, what's specific and unique and able to admit when some of my thoughts are wrong. And that's cool, right? And I to be wrong because that's how you learn. You make mistakes. That's how you learn. So I think showing up like that with people goes a long way. And I think that's where a lot of that comes because it allows people to put their own wisdom into my life and my world, not just my work. You feel what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I I, I get that. I appreciate what you're sharing. Uh, I'm curious to know, Michael, um, you know, th this video that that I saw uh, that you were featured in, it talks about uh, a narrative and changing the narrative. And I just wanted to spend some time talking about that with you before pivoting into what's uh, I think a little also more exciting for me, which is youth. But um, tell me a little bit about uh, what is this changing the narrative? What are you trying to change the narrative on? And um, why is the change in narrative needed? Like why not just stick with the mainstream narrative? I just fill me in on, on that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I'm going to, um, for the sake of conversation and because I like, I like um I like good dialogue. So I'm gonna flip it on you for a minute. What do you think the dominant narrative? I mean, having watched that video and you seeing other parts of my work, I'm interested in think you hearing excuse me, I'm interested in hearing from you what you think the dominant narrative I'm trying to uh, like attack or change is. Okay. All right. Yeah, that sounds good. Um you know, I get the sense that you're talking about um, you know, folks who have come from hard situations who who are having a difficult time coming back into a quote unquote normal life 
And there's this narrative around like, oh, you know, those folks may be drug addicts and those folks may not be there when you need them to be. And and uh, perhaps even like, you know, other things associated with other drugs or uh, associated with maybe even homelessness because there is a lot of youth out there who experience lack of shelter. So if I was to take uh, a gut check, I would say that, you know, there's a narrative around how that is experienced. And then there's a need to change that narrative because often those folks are well positioned to like innovate ideas around some of the most complex problems that we're facing as a society, both here in the United States and in other parts of the world. So that is my best guess. You let me know if I'm somewhere near. Yeah, no, you're very near. I mean, almost bullseye, right? Like the only thing I would add is like, it's for everybody, right? And it's just, I focus on some of our extreme you know, brothers and sisters and neighbors in the world who, and I, by extreme, I mean, they just experienced some of the harshest things that life can offer and have had to adapt in ways that um, many people like to label in all kinds of ways. Um, and one of the challenging issues that we label people as problems, but people, human beings are not problems to be fixed. They're to be loved. They're human beings to be loved, to be supported, to be challenged sometimes, sure, right? Um, held accountable, whatever, but like we can't start with the positionality or the space of a person being the problem. People experience problems, but people are not problems, right? They're human beings. Yeah. And that is my dominant thing here, right? And all the ways really that we have accepted uh, a society of dehumanization, a society that allows us to dehumanize people for really screwed up reasons and, and qualifications. Nobody should qualify for being dehumanized. That's just not cool. Like, and I don't bang with that, but we've been birthed into that, right? Like we all are growing up in white supremacy. We all are growing up in a culture dominated by whiteness. We're all growing up in a culture dominated by what they call heteronormativity, right? Meaning like that Everything is defined through the lens of heterosexual relationships, and that is the only thing that we can call normal. Um, and we're growing up in a world, and if you're outside of that, you're lesser than, right? Or there's something wrong with you, or there's something that should be considered shameful about you, right? We're growing up in a world that's based on classism, and that a certain amount of money and a certain type of access to money through wages or through jobs are like that particular way is the right way and the only way. And if you're not measuring up to standards of behavior and looks and identity that matches up with these class levels, there's something wrong with you that if you can't break out of the class you're born into, you didn't work hard enough. Like what is that kind of crap? Uh, particularly when all the research says that most people don't break out of the class that they were born into, right? And so the fact that I did is not lost on me. Like that, it's wild to me every day. I'm 35 and I still wake up and I'm like, yo, you broke out of that. Do you, that's not common for so many people like you. People yeah. come from your kinds of experiences or worse, right? Or even better lifestyles. They don't break out of their class either, right? It might not have been as bad for them in terms of the poverty level, but they still aren't able to break out of that. And the fact that I did is not, it's not lost on me that it's 
you you rather it's not I'm gonna say it's unique, but it's not unique because I'm unique. You feel what I'm saying? Because yeah, yeah, yeah. The number of things that go into that, and that's the narrative that I'm trying to switch up. Is there there is no great American entrepreneur that did it by themselves with their bootstraps? That's Bootstrap, the yeah, yeah. There's so yeah. many relationships and so many inputs uh, of a of a variety of types that go into creating well being and go into creating opportunity for people. And so much of it is about networking relationships too. Totally. Um, and and like that, and that's not, people don't, aren't born with equal networks and relationships, right? So. Yeah, I, relationships yeah. is what gets us out of poverty. It gets us out of Absolutely. difficult situations. It gets us into job opportunities or even just an introduction to someone else that can provide us an opportunity. So absolutely. And can keep you from falling into poverty, right? Like the one thing I learned from working in the field of housing insecurity and and homelessness services is Mm -hmm. that the experience of homelessness happens when all of your other resources and networks have bottomed out. Mm. That literally the difference maker tends to be a relationship or series of relationships that can help you not get there. Yeah. Yeah. That is the biggest difference maker, right? So, yeah, networks and relationships matter. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And just from having this dialogue with you, I think we share the same mission in changing this narrative because I think to me when I – when I reflect back on on the different conversations or positions that I've held in in the sustainability field, there is this narrative around, you know, it's carbon emissions how you do the sustainability movement. It's waste and how much recycling percentage you do. It's you know, it's that that's what sustainability is about. And to me, that's the mainstream narrative and how we deviate away from that is exactly like, let's get youth to make art for trash cans. Let's get youth (laughs) to, you know, develop systems and projects so that they engage their families in other opportunities. Let's come to them and bring opportunities to them or even just come to them and listen, you know, listen for several months before even trying to suggest anything to them because we're far-fetched to say like, hey, let's just invite them to the table if they have childs to take care of, they have tenants to worry about, you know, they have food at the table, transportation systems not in place, so on and so forth. So I like to think that like, that's a deviation from the mainstream sustainability narrative and changing into what is more of a holistic narrative. So I I appreciate you sharing that, Michael, because to me, engaging youth and, and giving them an opportunity, giving them a relationship to just feel good about something one day is going to go a long way to then getting them the next step and the next step. And that all starts really with a relationship, right? So, yeah, really exciting conversation with you, especially because it's like you're on the other side of the U.S., man, like you and I are seeing some similar things. Would you agree? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. um, You know, when we were able to travel more, I used to travel to LA and Oakland, the Bay Area Uh for work and was able to just see a lot 
happening out there. Um, and like you said, experienced a rather, for me, eye-opening similarity. Like the more I've gotten to travel around the country over the last six years, I've just been exposed to so much, right? Whether I'm in Miami-Dade County or Atlanta or, again, the West Coast or uh, Chicago or Detroit, like just seeing the ways that youth are um, in some ways begging for us to recognize their voice, which bothers me because no human being should have to beg to get their voice recognized, but that happens a lot in our country uh, and in the world in general. And then on the other hand, I love seeing them not beg and just be like, F you, I'm, here's my voice, here's my opinion, here's my work, here's my stuff. Um, and so, you know, wanting to always stay at that intersection of allowing youth to take their space the way they need to take their space, right? Um, yeah. And also, you know, providing them the support that they do need, right? Like, it, it, it is true that youth have a lot of capacity for leadership and are already leading in many ways. But I know it's also true that they need older people to support them as well um, and not usurp them, though, right? Like to truly support them and not take over their stuff, right? So like, for example, I know youth that got programs and stuff that they're running and it's dope, but they don't know how to necessarily build it to last and turn it into like a long-term institution. And yeah. I'm, I'm saying that because I know people have reached out to me, young people have reached out to me about that. And so I support them in that, but I'm not trying to take over their program and become their board chair and like become their ED. And the, you know what I'm saying? Like we yeah. really go out of our way to, to minimize youth, but act like we're supporting them. You know, the other thing in that space for me is like, I know youth, can struggle with grant writing because I struggled with grant writing. A lot of people struggle with grant writing. Like you got to learn grant writing. You just don't wake up one day and be like, I think I'm writing in general, right? Yeah. (laughs) And so, and and also that fundraising is not always, it's not really about the grant. It's about the relationships, but somebody's got to teach you all that stuff. Right. Or you've got to be in the game long enough to get the knocks and figure it out. Um, And you still got to learn from people. That's the other thing here is like, no matter what the industry is, the sector is, what it is that you're trying to get to, there's always somebody that knows more than you and you've got to learn from them at the same yeah. time that you're being uh, ag- aggressive in a healthy way and showing initiative and trying things out and putting things forward. You also got to learn from those from you who have come before you, even if they're younger than you, but older, if you will, in the context of the doing in a particular sector, right? So I've got older folks who are in their 50s who hit me up to learn more about grant writing or, you know, relationship building with funders and whatnot. Yeah. You know, at, at the same time that I hit up young people all the time, cause they're experts in digital technology and ways that I'm just not, you feel me? Like I know how to yeah. use them. I'm not like an old man, old man, but Let, let's get really specific though on youth. Cause you know, youth could, there's youth that I know that spend, you know, too much time online and will complain about their lives just because they their, their thumbs are hurting. You know, then there's youth who don't have Wi-Fi access, the digital divide, and are still, uh, you know, 
trying to to improve their situation out in the in in in, in the communities in in the in the barrios in the quote unquote ghettos in the Chinatowns and whatnot. So we're really talking about like you know people of color. We're talking about Latinx communities. We're talking about Hispanic communities. We're talking about uh, African American communities. We're talking about folks who are closest to these issues, closest to the front line, right? Yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I'll say this, like, one of the things I've realized is that, you know, my work is specifically uh, with with young people is often specifically for black and brown young folks, right? Mm -hmm. But on the flip side, um, one of the things I've learned and realized over the last six years is that you take an issue like mass incarceration, um, and how racist the justice system is. Um, there are some partnerships we're going to have to make with poor working white class people. Yeah. Right. Like, and we've got to figure out how to do that because right now so many of them have been hijacked by the conservative movement and uh, there ain't that much over there for them. Right. (laughs) At all. Um, there's a lot of lies on that side for them, but very little substance and sustenance. And not that the Democratic Party, we'll be very clear here, has that much for uh, black and brown folk, let alone rural white folks, right? Like really, our, the truth is there's another, if you will, a third way. There's not, it's not yeah. the third part, but there's another way here that can support us all. But like, we've got to be real about the fact that at the end of the day, if we do not begin to find allegiance with poor white working class folks and rural working class folks. We're never going to solve that issue of mass incarceration. They've got in many places, prison labor, you know, is what replaced coal and other industries um, that were the big economic drivers out there. So when we're marching around yelling about men in mass incarceration, which we should and changing the justice system, which we should be doing all of those things, if we're not figuring out how to get poor white folks broadband, internet, and other job opportunities, they enjoy. They ain't never going to agree that we should be changing shit. You feel me? Like because we're attacking their jobs, we're attacking their livelihoods. But that's not their fault. They didn't do that. Powerful other folks did that and made that all of that happen. So we've got to figure out how to be connecting and building relationship and building empathic understanding on both sides. Uh, between black and brown young people who are overwhelmingly getting put into pipelines to fill those kinds of places. We've got to get that group and we've got to get these poor white people, the young folks over there to start having some kind of dialogue to hopefully get to a place where things are changing, right? Because again, until we are addressing that tension, the real change we want to see might not fully happen. And or if it does, it's going to be seen as antagonistic. And, and right now we've got a president who is not against using and not just the president, but there's a whole movement of that party, not afraid to use that antagonism as ways to cite, incite violence. And yeah. violence is not going to help. That's the craziest part. The violence is not going to help these people because the, the rich conservatives do not care about them. But you can't convince them of that, right? And so the goal is not to convince them of that. But I'm like, if we can get some of them young folks to be talking to other young folks, there is maybe something could happen. Because young people have this uncanny way of being able to, like, talk mm-hmm. to each other <laughs> in ways that adults miss. So, you know, again, my work does focus on black and brown youth. And we are primarily talking about black and brown youth. But I do got to lift up the tension of, like, 
one of the yeah. ways of moving forward to solve things at the national level is going to be confronting this really violent, nasty sh- stuff that yeah. a party is like inciting and like, yeah, I don't want to, I, I don't know. It's a new thing for me in this yeah. space of like, it, it's been, you know, I like what you're adding, Michael, because you know, it, it's these tensions that I think are between different uh, demographics, you know, between, there's a history between, uh, of tensions between black and brown folks. There's a history between all, all of us amongst us. And I think it's it's far more than just having to bring people together because there's people who are coming from a hate place and bringing people together. So I think we need to come from a place of love and bring people together, right? And differentiate ourselves in that way. Would you agree? Absolutely, right? It's like, hateful folks are really good at galvanizing using hate right and we're watching it happen in our in front of us and we've got to get really thoughtful and creative about galvanizing people in the context of love and shared humanity because that's the other narrative thing for me is like there's a narrative around shared humanity which has us understanding that the key characteristics and qualities and mechanisms of our humanity are not necessarily 100% unique. Like there's beauty in the fact that those mechanisms and that definition of our shared humanity is not just shared with other humans that don't look like us, right? However you define yourself, but also the fact that it's shared with the environment. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like really, we, we, we don't even understand that genetically we have so much in common with other species, earthworms, plants, like, if I'm not mistaken, it's something like 30 to 40% of our genetic encoding is in common with plants. When you think about it in vegetative life, when you think about it from a, again, a mechanistic perspective, it makes sense. It's like, right, when we stand in the sun, there are biochemical processes that pop off in our body the same way plants need to survive and a whole bunch of biochemical processes like photosynthesis happen in <laughs> sunlight. Like, it's like, duh, yes, we do produce vitamin vitamin d for example standing in the damn sun our body does that and we don't think about it from that concept that there is something in our humanity that is unique but then there's also something that's so not unique and beautifully common and not just with other human beings and that narrative is one that can really help us reshape the world reshape policy reshape our relationship to the planet and other living you know things be they flowers and plants or animals, whatever it is, right? So I'm hopeful that that like we can invest in that kind of narrative. And that's part of this narrative change for me, even though I go very deep and specific into like focusing on the future of work or for focusing on community development. Yeah. There's something larger at play, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I get the sense that uh the the youth who have you know this unique story, each one of them they have this gift of um, this experience, and it's it's not necessarily something you're gonna outline in a in a resume, you know, or something like that. Uh, but it's this experience of adaptability, mm-hmm. and it's this experience of adaptability that I think is gonna make them a lot more resilient in moving forward to these multifaceted, multifunctional working space of the future, right? Because they're already used to getting adapted, like to big things, you know, not just a change of software, but like they're, they're used to changing 
houses. They're used to changing streets. They're used to changing what they eat or are not able to eat, you know? So a change in, in something small is going to be minute to them, you know? So to me, it's like they they have this gift and and it's not going to show up in their resume, but I, if you're listening in and you have that gift, man, use that gift, right? <laughs> yeah, you know, the world needs all of our gifts, right? Like the world needs us. And this, this is where opportunity comes up, right? Yeah. The world doesn't need another artist. Let me rephrase that. The world doesn't need another um, recording artist, for example, but it does need another singer. It does need another music maker because uh-huh. music making and the activity of listening to music and the usage of music in um, everyday life goes beyond the utilitarian kind of like music in the elevator, music on the phone while we're working, <laughs> music on my iPad, music on my da da da, music in the background while I'm working. There's a larger process or a series of things, if you will, that music supports the grieving process, right? Yeah. Um, and, and what would it be like to think about the use of art and art making for other means than just industry or making money? Even though I know people need money to survive. And that's just thinking about artistic gifts. There's so many gifts that people have that are not encouraged to be developed because the direct link to economic output or money-making opportunities isn't there. And then what you find out when you get older and you are working in these sectors in the background, uh-huh. that's what people want. And I'm like, well, you spent 20 years telling people not to do that shit. So now what? Or Excuse me, I'm cursing. Not to do that stuff. So now now we've got this like, we, we do, it's like the, you, you threw the baby out with the bathwater and now you're begging for the thing that you just flushed down the toilet. Like, what are we doing, right? So yeah. we need people, we need adults who are willing to invest in young people having periods of discovery that lasts longer than we're comfortable with because we've all been socialized to think that by 18, a young person needs to pretty much be ready to enter the entire working world as an adult, which is the stupid idea. Just stupid. We're just, that is stupid. Yeah. Yeah. I'm curious to know, Michael, uh, you know, you were talking about these things, uh, use the language of, uh, heterotism i think or or Hetero, uh, heteronormativity yeah heteronormativity and and whiteness and 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 you know uh the the dominant culture if you will right um there's there's uh youth that i've met over the years who um who's who's you know um history comes from sometimes roots in in latin america and for one reason or another, right, they end up not speaking Spanish, whether it's, you know, adaptation or assimilation, so on and so forth. And so ultimately, then that drives them also to then adopt the mainstream or the, the dominant culture, right? And I'm curious to know, I wanted to ask you this question, you know, when, when you speak with youth, what are the ways or what are the questions or techniques that that you use to kind of get them to think about these things at at such a young age that that may be um, difficult for them to like start to like dive into you know because it gets into identity and other things 
And so I'm just curious to know, like, how is it that you navigate those conversations and, and really nurturing of, of youth? Yeah. So one technique I use is talk about money. Okay. Like, <laughs> it's, it's a weird thing that we in society, people think that like someone as young as 11 is not concerned about money. Um, mm -hmm. Not true. That's not true at all. Um, in fact, programs that I've run in Philadelphia and designed um, in Philly, in well, not even just Philly, in other parts of the country for other orgs, or um, you know, I'm on boards for orgs and I'm helping you know the staff design things. I'm always putting in like we need to be paying the kids, right? Um, and then let me—they're not kids; these are like, emerging adults, and these are youth, right? Um, and and young people and so to use your example around language i will often point out to people and show them young people and show them all the ways that speaking a second language can create more money in your pocket mm. like we got this weird thing going on where it's like don't speak a, don't speak that language you just be American, be be white, be as close to whiteness as possible. And then you cr start crossing over to trying to get jobs in the business world. And you start looking at like people want bilingual folks. The more the <laughs> speaking a second language matters in so many cases and places, because take Philadelphia, for example, there are sections of Philadelphia where you have. 25 Southeast Asian ethnic groups in one, you know, 12 block by 12 block area. 25. That's not even including the amount of African migrants that are there, working class white people that are there, African Americans that are there the Latinx community and its, you know, diversity there. So every time this organization in Philadelphia, um, they're particularly in South Philly, and they're called CMAC. It's an acronym. I can't remember all everything it stands for at the moment. But CMAC, every time it's printing something, is practically doing, I think it's in 12, they're doing it in at least 12 languages. And that's still not covering every language spoken in that area. Yeah. Language, like speaking a second language in the 21st century matters so much. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you is is part money and part language, huh? Yeah. To be able to like get plant, plant these seeds really because, well, yeah, I was just curious to know because, you know. That's specifically for young people, you know, like when that conversation comes up around identity and the language piece and how people have disconnected from their language, their indigenous language, and just might not know it anymore or never learned it. Um, because it's starting there gives me an opportunity to talk to people about myths and, and I call it the fake out. Like there's so much stuff you're taught or, in, or like socialized into, particularly when you're poor, but also just even like if you're middle-class, like, you know what you know, based on like, what was around you, who said it to you, and larger media-based narratives and things that are coming at you. Or college too, right? Yeah, there's so much stuff that's coming at you. So there's that reality of like what you've come to know, and then there's the reality of how stuff actually works. Yeah. 
And so when I expose that to people, I'm like, yeah. And they, they, then they have questions, right? And it naturally starts to get us into a place where we can talk about identity and it's nothing that I forced down their throat. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think, key. And what was helpful for me when, when I was trying to figure some of these things out was just having uh, folks that I can relate to who were elders of mine. Because it's one thing to have, you know, a mentor who is is uh, you can't relate to or may not speak the same language, may not share these things with you. But it's another for someone who has come from difficult situations, who has faced uh, clashes of cultures and whatnot. So I appreciate you sharing that, Michael. Um, I'm curious to know, you know, as we wrap this up, you know, um, I would love for you to send a message to to youth who may be listening to this podcast. Like, what are your your words of wisdom or or anything you'd like to share with them? You know, what are some some tips or or, or things to keep in mind as as they uh, come into experiences in life and as they come into um, some of these realities, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. Hmm. Well, I'm just going to speak from my heart and just kind of off the top of my head here. You know, one thing is that life is full of trauma and and pain. It is right. And I learned this from a a woman whose name I cannot remember because it was at a conference, but she said that life schedules its own trauma and grief. So it's our job to schedule joy and to schedule meaningful relationships and connections and celebration. Again, life mm -hmm. schedules trauma and grief on its own without your choosing. So we have to purposefully choose to schedule moments of joy and celebration and connection and meaningful relationships. And so I encourage you to do that, right? Because life is going to hand you its own I would call it trash, but, you know, the thing we call trash can be the very thing that we learn from and sets us up for our good. But life is going to hand you painful experiences. Um, and so, you know, not getting consumed by your trauma is hard. So invest in trying to build a relationship with one adult, at least, that really cares about you and who loves you and is going to be willing to tell you things you might not want to hear. But that's how you know somebody loves you. They're not just telling you things to keep you around and be your friend or keep you around and just have everything go hunky-dory, right? They're willing to challenge you. And you got to be open and willing to challenge yourself and to hear it, right? Like one of the, we're talking about wisdom. A sign of wisdom is being able to hear things you might not agree with and sit with them for a moment and poke and prod them a little bit, poke at them and see, well, is there a little bit of truth here? Is there something I can still learn from this, even though I don't necessarily agree with it and sit with it? And if you really just don't agree with it after some time, throw it out. But if you sit with it and you find there is something in there that you might be able to use to better yourself or it makes you curious and you have new questions, go back and ask or find something new and you go look up something to figure out, you know, how to make sense of that thing. But, you know, sit in the tension and see what you can learn. Um, the other thing I'll add in here is that going back to trauma, you know, when we experience trauma in our lives. It's not our fault, right? Trauma is when 
there's a an emotional or physical threat to your well-being that's going to bring out feelings in you that are feelings of terror, powerlessness, helplessness, a lack of control. Um, and often we are often they're not just threats. Something literally does happen that hurts us, either physically, emotionally, um, et cetera. Right. And so those experiences of powerlessness and hurt and pain are typically at the hands of somebody else. So they're not your fault. But unfortunately, you know, it is your responsibility to address the harms that were created in your life because otherwise they're going to own you. They're going to hijack your body and hijack your mind. And it's your responsibility by default. It's not your responsibility because you did those things. Of course, you didn't do it. Other people did it to you. But it's your responsibility only because nobody can jump in your body and make you handle those things, make you address those harms, make you face the things that are very painful and causing you pain, right? And so because nobody can jump in your body and make you do it, you're the only one that can. So that's also why it's important to have good supportive relationships, at least one, around you so that when you're going through those things, you have a good supportive relationship to fall back on when you're trying to navigate that harm harm and like solve it, address it, if you will. You got other relationships in your life that are not centered around hurt and harm and gives you a little bit of escape. That's also why you got to schedule the joy and the meaningful relationships and the meaningful stuff, the things that bring you joy, make you feel good in life, that don't bring you harm or further harm. You know, it's important to have those while you're addressing the trauma. But again, nobody can address the trauma for you but you. You can get help in that space. Right. But nobody can address it but you. So remember that. And I hope it gives you courage and some support and love to move through and address those things so that you can literally be whoever it is that you want to be in life. Life is so full of opportunity. It doesn't always feel like it, but it is so full of opportunity. And that is my wish and hope for any young person, any adult listening here, listening here, that you are able to find the opportunity and experience that opportunity as much as possible. It does take work. Like I'm not even going to front on that because things Mm -hmm. have been built for us to be successful quickly, Um, particularly black and brown folk, particularly, you know, poor folk, whether you're black, brown or white, like things have just not been built for us to succeed the way others have had that opportunity, but it's possible. It is possible. So, yeah. Great, Michael. Thanks for sharing that. I think um, I had one more question for you and it was around hope, but I get the sense that I know the answer to this question is what brings you hope. And and at least for me, youth brings me hope, man. I mean, when I receive a, a correspondence or a message from a youth that I used to work with or, or still work with, like, man, it pivots my energy, it pivots my day. It's it's an amazing feeling to just hear from them and, and hear that they're doing just a bit better, you know? Is that the same for you? Yeah. Uh, youth, um, adult, like any, actually, you know what? Humanity gives me hope. You okay. give me a specific, like, flavor of that hope for sure, but working with people gives me hope. Because I get to have those kinds of experiences that you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and 
whether it's an employer that makes a big shift, someone that works at a foundation that makes a big shift, a young person in programs I've helped designed or just even have like walked by or talked to, right? Like all of those things definitely reinforce hope for me. Um, because I know, I know that I'm not probably going to see as much change as I would love to see during my lifetime, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't work towards it. And those moments give me hope because they remind me that you might not see or touch every kind of change or every opportunity for change that emerges. Like I'm recording this podcast. I don't know who's going to listen to this. I may never meet any of those people. Somebody might listen to this and go, you know what? That made me think about my life trauma differently. That made me think about the fact that yeah. I can learn from my traumatic experiences and grow and become the person that I want to be and I can help other people and I can la, la, la. Like, that's amazing. And knowing that I might never meet those people, that's even more amazing. Like, I get hope yeah. of all of that. So, Yeah, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, any other uh, last thoughts you like to share before we we close off this michael um no nah, we talked about a lot of stuff uh, you know young people that are listening um feel free to reach out to alfredo and if you want to like see videos on some of the stuff that i talked about with like trauma and healing or learn about stress in the body or learn about opportunities to do something different, whatever. Like, you know, there's mad videos and things available to learn in this subject area around our humanity. And so I'd be happy to share resources if that's something that people are interested in. Cool. And what's the best way for folks to reach out to you if you don't mind sharing? Oh, yeah. I mean, I'll share my email, but like my inbox gets full very, very fast. And so I don't... I don't even want to set y'all up to try to email me. I can't handle it at the moment. I'm, I'm in the middle of literally hiring people to help me handle my inbox. So truthfully, if they hit up your podcast email or however email, like however people yeah. get in touch with you, if they hit you up and you let me know that people are interested in those kind of resources, I can put them together, but I don't even Great. want to set people up. Yeah, working those relationships, right? <laughs> yeah, I hope, Michael, that this is the beginning of a, a long-term relationship where we can um, support each other and be in struggle with each other. Absolutely. It's been uh, amazing to have you in this conversation. And ultimately, well, thank you. I hope we have another opportunity to, to collaborate. So thank you for being at the Climate Frontline podcast, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for doing this, man. I really appreciate your work and what you're opening up, these channels of communication. All right. All righty. Take care. Hey, I hope that my conversation with Michael brought a fresh air, some fresh air to your day. I admire the work that Michael is doing because he's humanizing the work. And to me... The credit he's building far surpasses any greenhouse corporate credit an executive is going to report in their impact report. The credit he's building is the credit in the streets, the credit with community, the credit that means changing lives. The environmental movement has got to do better to change the approach and the way we do work. We have to redefine how we approach sustainability. We have to decolonize it and really understand it. 
And that is what we do in this community. That is what we do in our community at the Climate Frontline. So thank you so much for tuning in. If you have enjoyed this episode, please take a second to leave a review on Apple Podcast. It will really mean a lot to me and help me out. Or simply just send me a message. You know, I don't get many messages uh, of appreciation. But when I do, they mean a lot to me. And you may recall uh, in a conversation with Khalid Kadir, he mentioned in the episode that, you know, when John Lewis started doing this work back then, no one wanted to really give him any appreciation. No one wanted to give him any credit because at the time, it was just not the right time, right? But now you look back, now that John Lewis has passed away, everyone wants to take pride on that work. So I say that because I know that we're trying to change the narrative in a time when everybody, everyone wants to drink the quote-unquote mainstream environmental champion Kool-Aid, right? And especially right now. Yet maybe we realize that we don't need to be drinking this Kool-Aid, but rather maybe is that we have a conversation with our elders, with our ancestors about the drinks that they used to make for themselves, about the way in which they cultivated those fruits to make those drinks. Because that's different for everybody. And it's just not one way in which we make that drink. So with that, thank you so much for everyone. And I will see you next time at the Climate Frontline. Adios, amigos. The communities who are experiencing the worst effects of climate change are those who are best positioned to innovate solutions. Thank you for tuning in and being part of changing the narrative. See you next time at the Climate Frontline.